The long Venus drought ends now, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. On June 2nd, Jim Garvin and Sue Smrakar received what had to be among the most welcome phone calls ever. The principal investigators of the Da Vinci and Veritas missions were greeted by NASA Science Mission Directorate Associate Administrator Thomas Zerbuchen with this simple message, you're going to Venus. Which means, of course, that we are all going back to Venus. And the European Space Agency made it a hat trick one week later with word that it will send a spacecraft called Envision to our sister world. We are moments away from congratulating Jim and Sue and hearing about their complimentary missions. Bruce Betts will follow up with a Venusian space trivia contest when he joins me for What's Up. It's not in the July 9 edition of the Downlink, but you know I have to salute Virgin Galactic. Spaceship 2, Unity, the same rocket plane I stuck my head into a few years ago on this show, took its two pilots and four passengers on the ride of their lives July 11th. It has been a long, hard climb, but it looks like the era of suborbital human spaceflight for all has finally arrived. I have to qualify for all, of course, since a ticket will set you back hundreds of thousands of dollars, but this is the direct and continuing consequence of ever cheaper access to space. I'm ready to go, as soon as the price comes down by an order of magnitude or two. Congrats to Richard Branson and the entire VG team. I look forward to extending the same congratulations to Jeff Bezos and Blue Origin when the first New Shepard flight to carry humans lifts off on July 20th, which is a pretty good day to make a little more history. Just a little bit farther into space is Mighty Jupiter. The Planetary Society's new album with our favorite Jovian Pictures leads at planetary.org downlink. Astronauts made the first spacewalk outside China's new station on July 4th. The work included installation of a robotic arm. And Ingenuity, the Mars helicopter, completed a ninth flight, breaking its own records for Martian flying machines. The little whirly bird is beginning to do its own genuine Mars exploration. I contacted Sue Smrakar and Jim Garvin within hours of hearing that their many years of proposing missions to Venus had finally paid off. Sue is a senior research scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab in California, and still serves as the Deputy Principal Investigator for the ongoing InSight mission on Mars. She also served as Deputy Project Scientist for the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Jim Garvin is Chief Scientist at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Maryland. He had that title some years ago at NASA headquarters and also served as Chief Scientist for Mars Exploration. Some of you may, like me, remember his appearance on The David Letterman Show, Sue and Jim joined me for an online conversation a few days ago. Jim, Sue, at the risk of ruining what's left of my uh, reputation for journalistic impartiality, I want to say, woo this is fantastic. Congratulations to both of you and your teams. Thank Thanks, you Matt. so much. Hey, we're over the Venus. 
<laughs> it doesn't have any moons, so I guess you can't be over its moons. Um, this is just amazing news. As you know, we were all thrilled at the Planetary Society. Let me ask both of you, first of all, how you found out that you had made it through the, the discovery program to be selected, green-lighted by, by NASA. Sue, why don't you go first? I got the call. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I've gotten both kinds of calls at this point. And um, let me say that this one was vastly better. Uh, so, yeah, you find out 12, 24 hours in advance that you're going to get a call from uh, Zerbukin in, the, in a time slot. And, it, and I feel like I always have to wait at least at least it's in the second half of that hour. <laughs> So it's always like, oh, <laughs> I have to know, I have to know. Uh, so it's nerve wracking, but uh, this time the wait was worth it. So it was uh, the fantastic call I've been uh, hoping for for a long time now. <laughs> Jim, was that your experience? Let's put it this way, Matt. Um, nerve wracking is not the term. I'm a goaltender in hockey. So I used to get nervous <laughs> before games, you know, little black discs. This was worse than that. Um, and at 8.04, um, when the window of time for calling from Dr. Zerbukin was around 8 to, to 9 Eastern, um, I got a call and I thought, well, this is going to be glum news. As always, this is our fourth time trying to send an in situ mission to Venus. So we thought, well, maybe not. And when he said, well, you're going to Venus, uh, I almost tripped over my dog who sits underfoot of me. I was literally shocked. I started whooping it up. I, people were texting me left and right. And uh, because, you know, we never dared hope. It's one of those things. So for me, you know, I started to play some some live, uh, some music in the background to get me psyched. It was a U2 song I like. And uh, I think I think we found what we're looking for. We're going back to Venus. And so oh, man. it was great. Yeah, Jim, you reminded me that the call came at 5.30 in the morning for me. And yeah, I had woken up at 3 o'clock because I just couldn't sleep anymore. You know, it's like the anticipation was too much. That probe, you see pictures of it, artist renderings of it already descending down to the surface. The thing looks like a little pressure cooker to me uh, for good reason, right? Well, our, our probe, which we call our descent sphere, because it's inside of an aeroshell and gets all packaged up is about a meter in diameter. So she's about the same size as the spherical belly of the Venera landers that went to Venus so successfully mm. um, in the 80s and 70s from the Soviet Union or the then Soviet Union. And she's a titanium pressure vessel, aerofaring system with spin vanes around her midriff to stabilize us so we can do the high resolution, high uh, sensitivity imaging. Um, she also has a bunch of different inlets. They're the kind of the, uh, the sniffer system that allows us to sample the atmosphere. We'll make hundreds of measurements and scans of the chemistry of the atmosphere in ways that have never been done before for any planetary atmosphere. The other thing is we've tested a flight test unit of our probe, which we're very proud to have shown um, some VITB visitors just a couple of weeks ago, to full Venus conditions. And so when you see this thing up close and you realize how kind of big it is, I mean, She's a beast with, with four primary instruments, a student payload, all this pressure and temperature accelerometers, the telecommunication system, which is a two-way system that we're working on with the Applied Physics Lab. So we'll be upregulating and downregulating our data rates as we descend so we can get the most data back from our chemistry and our imaging experiments. So this probe is the essence of our mission. I, I like to say it uses natural vertical mobility. Uh, you know, <laughs> we fly on Mars, we'll be 
descending on Venus thanks to the way Venus works. Obviously, you're going to descend under parachute, but then that parachute is released, and the last, what, kilometer or so, you're just in free fall. Why is that? The last 40 kilometers were in oh. free fall. So we will release our parachutes after we ingest the gas samples from the middle atmosphere that will represent the bulk atmosphere, when we'll actually ingest and process those, those gas samples to look at the noble gases. After we do that, we'll release the parachute and we will free fall, changing velocity from about several tens of meters a second to a final terminal velocity down around 10 or 12 meters per second. That's about as fast as a boat hitting a dock at a speed you'd rather not like, but still um, survivable. So hmm. literally our final five kilometers will be fluttering down, twisting a little bit in the low Venus winds, collecting images and chemistry samples that will tell us about the water history of Venus, the unique surface atmosphere interactions, the surface landscape at scales of submeters. We'll make topography maps that we hope will be useful to SUS mission for calibrating the backscatter of, from their X-band radar, um, which could be a sort of a ground control point. We may even have a radar cross-section that could be seen by SUS radar. So, Oh, wouldn't that um, be something? It would be really cool. Sue, speaking of improvements in technology, I mean, I think back to the Magellan Orbiter. It had that giant radar dish. I don't see one on Veritas. Is that a sign of how far things have come? <laughs> Yeah, well, uh, in the 30 years <laughs> since Magellan, uh, yes, things have come a long way. Yeah, we have just our two uh, parallel radar transmitters and receivers. They both transmit and receive. So, yeah, they're just over three meters long. Uh, you know, we have uh, a separate antenna that does the communications and then our radar antenna. So, yeah, things have changed just tremendously. The technology is completely different than it was back when Magellan flew. So, yeah, we don't need this enormous antenna in order to get super high resolution data. So, so many things have enabled that, uh, including our onboard processing. For the majority of our data, we get a, a thousand fold reduction in the volume of data before wow. we send it down. Yeah, that's we amazing. can send raw data, but we get, but mostly we send back uh, data that's been compressed by a thousand fold without without loss. This is part of the technology that's been developed to support, uh, you know, just this the suite of radar investigations for the Earth that are, you know, doing everything from, you know, mapping topography, but also mapping the ocean surface and uh, so many climate change related investigations. So we've really just, you know, advanced not only in the hardware but also in the software. Uh, that we'll use to, you know, create this just tremendous global data set. When Magellan flew, the, the topography that we got back was better than we had for most of the Earth. <laughs> so it was just an advance then. And, uh, you know, now uh, we're going to get uh, a similar huge leap forward. That's exactly where I was hoping to go. I, I, I'm also thinking of all the people listening to this as an MP3, which is nowhere near the thousand-fold compression that you're going to be achieving with data coming back from Venus. Is there more you can say about how big a jump this is over what Magellan was able to deliver? Because, of course, I still look at a lot of those Magellan images, and they're, they're pretty amazing still. Sure, sure. So for our topography, we're having a two orders of magnitude, a factor of a hundred better oh, yeah. resolution. So uh, you know, if you if you looked at uh, the island of Hawaii, you know, you would have about twenty five pixels for Magellan. They're they're about you know they range from about twelve to twenty five kilometers in size. So if you looked at Hawaii, you could get the idea that you know maybe there's a couple peaks there. So you know you'd have some sense that there's a 
uh, volcano there. But with the data that we'll get from Veritas, we'll see the calderas, we'll see the fault scarps, mm. we'll see individual flows. You know, it, it, the, the resolution, the surface uh, vertical resolution is six meters. So, you know, many of the flows on Hawaii, you can actually see in that scale of uh, topography. And, you know, we really focused on optimizing our topography because radar is fabulous. You know, we, we've learned so much from those images of Magellan, but it's, it's an imperfect way to view the surface, you know, and Jim has referenced this. You need to have uh, a so-called dielectric contrast in order to pick out things on the surface. And so, you know, you can have adjacent flows, lava flows that you couldn't distinguish one from another because if they have basically the same surface roughness, um, you can't see them or you can't see their, their boundaries in the radar. Our, our image data will also be an order of magnitude better, a factor of 10 better than Magellan data and, you know, have really good signals to noise. We expect to see things that we never imagined. You know, we've gone back to Mars many times with an order of magnitude increase in resolution and, you know, similarly for the moon. And every time we've done that, we see things we never imagined were on the surface. There are so many questions that we, you know, of course, want to answer right now, but it's always the discoveries that we just haven't anticipated that will completely revolutionize our thinking about, you know, our sister planet. Maybe this is a good time to bring up how your missions will complement each other. You've, you've already hinted at that, but it sure does seem like the, the sum is going to be greater than the parts. Jim? Exactly. In fact, this is a dream come true, I think, for all of us. I mean, certainly for Sue and I and our teams. But I mean, the, the, the Armada is going to Venus. And, you know, a probe mission can measure chemistry, like a rover mission on Mars can measure chemistry in rocks. We'll be doing it through the atmosphere and inferring composition of rocks. But, but we're only one dimension of the problem. And it has to be integrated into the global perspective. In fact, we hope our probe descent data sets, the imaging ones, composition at meter scale, topography at meter scale from our camera systems will produ produce kind of training sites that can be fed into Sue's global modeling of the whole planet for one particular region on Venus. So we'll sort of produce the airborne ground truth, you know, hmm. kind of like a drone's eye view. Um, so Sue can then extrapolate that over the whole planet. And her topography, I just have to say, exactly as she said, is going to be so important. When we went to Mars, dare we did so with a laser altimeter in the 90s and saw the Mars at that scale that Sue will be getting for Venus, it changed everything, literally everything. And people said, oh, you know, we don't really need that. Well, we did. And now we're going to get it for Venus. Just imagine there's 450 million square kilometers of real estate to map on Venus. That's a lot of ground to cover. And so we're going to be seeing that third dimension and integrating that story topographically to what we see locally to the chemistry story about the history of water and the bulk inventory versus the inventory that was lost and the sources of that will couple together to give us this more holistic view of the planet, which is really the way to explore. And we've done that before, Cassini at Saturn, some of the Mars program, Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter at Mars, for example. But now we're gonna do it at Venus with two missions that will look at the planet and, um, and we'll provide some of the atmospheric boundary conditions and the lapse rate, that temperature variation from the clouds down to the surface, every 10 meters, we will have that measurement for the first time that will help calibrate some of the emissivity data um, that Sue will be mapping the whole planet with. So I think there's a lot of incredible natural synergisms that, and we share teammates too, so that will be even more exciting to work together. 
as we go to look at exoplanets, we really want to know, are they likely to have plate tectonics or not? So we have this real opportunity to be able to understand, you know, to look for that, uh, you know, first phase enveloping plate tectonics. And yeah, you know, you know, in the topography, if the San Andreas fault were there on the surface of Venus, we wouldn't see it in the data we have now. But with Veritas, we can really begin to map out the subtle variations in topography that will tell us so much about the tectonic evolution. Boy, we've got so much more to learn about our own neighborhood if we want to understand what's going on across the galaxy, right, Jim? Well, exactly. In fact, that's one of the emphases of Da Vinci and, and several of our teammates are Deputy PI, Giada Arney, um, Stephen Kane in the University of California. One of the things we want to do is turn Venus into the exoplanet next door as a, basically a, a ground control point or a planet control point for looking beyond. And in the era of James Webb Space Telescope that will be launching this year, mm, we will yes. have the tools to see exo-Venuses spectroscopically using transited exoplanetary spectroscopy. A lot of words, but the ability to actually tease out chemistry of atmospheres of planets in the Earth-Venus size range and start to explore the evolution of a habitable zone. Da Vinci will provide the measurements from the top of the clouds, ultraviolet spectroscopy, all the way through the atmosphere to look at what an exoplanet next door really looks like, compositionally, spectroscopically, and in terms of its evolutionary history. We may be able to tell the difference between our Venus this hot climate change run amok world that Sue was just talking about that we're going to get to know so well with, with Veritas and Da Vinci and others, compare it to a former state of Venus, like some of the, the modelers are predicting, that might have been a, a much more clement, habitable time with long-lived surface bodies of water. Think of this, Matt. If Venus harbored surface oceans of liquid water for billions of years, why might it not have generated those onset conditions for the chemistry of what we call life. And whether agnostically we explore that or through other techniques, that is a vital question as we look beyond. And to tell that there are other Venuses around stars that we can sense with astrophysical observatories that are in the habitable state, not in the current Venus state, would be a breakthrough. So our team, together with the astrophysics community, of course, are dying to attack that problem and make Venus the exoplanet next door. I promised we would get to that third mission that we learned, you know, barely a week after NASA announced the green lighting of, of your missions. The European Space Agency is also going back to, to Venus with Envision. Uh, Sue, I saw that your JPL colleague, Scott Hensley, is a project scientist for its radar system. Uh, and Scott is working with you on Veritas, too, isn't he? He's a double project scientist. <laughs> <laughs> I just think the prospects for learning will be so great. We'll see the history of habitability in a world next door that can tell us about those things that Sue was mentioning about early early histories of, of, of plate tectonics and other crustal things. And, and let's not forget, Matt, the other distinguishing thing of Venus, tons of the rock record, it also has this massive atmosphere. For a rocky planet to have an atmosphere like Venus takes a lot of work. Mother Nature doesn't mm -hmm. favor that. We need to understand that. So all the kids out there today, those young girls and boys, will have a Venus to study. That's our job. Sue, I'm going to give you a chance to get the last word here uh, as you think about what's ahead of us over the next, let's say, 15 years, because that'll get us out there with all three of these spacecraft and probably terrific science being returned. An absolute revolution in our understanding of rocky planets. Well said. 
Thank you both. Congratulations again. As you can expect, the Planetary Society, this show, I hope, will be carefully following uh, the progress of both of your efforts. And I, I look forward to checking in periodically to see how things are coming along. And then, of course, to uh, the arrival at Venus of, uh, of your spacecraft. Thank you so much, folks. Thanks, Matt. We're delighted to be here. And what a, what a ride it's going to be. Absolutely. It's been fabulous. Da Vinci Principal Investigator Jim Garvin and Veritas Principal Investigator Sue Smrikar. As usual, there is much more of our conversation at planetary.org radio. Bruce Betts arrives in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, that is the astronomer and scientist and project manager, Bruce Betts. Welcome back. I saw Venus. It was, you couldn't miss it. <laughs> I, think I, I think I had a Venus shadow. Man, it was bright. Yeah, it's, uh, it's impressive. Brightest natural object in the sky besides that pesky moon and sun. So what else is going on up there? Well, let's start with Venus. Uh, you can Everyone can participate in seeing Venus, but you need to look in the early evening. Over in the west, fairly low to the horizon, but as Matt just said, he was surprised by how high up it was. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. But still, look in the early evening, fairly low in the west. Mars is still very close to Venus, a little bit below it, and much dimmer, over 100 times dimmer. Looking reddish, tough to see, and it's going to drop away within days, basically. Venus will drop away, but it'll take weeks, and uh, it's really easy to see, as you saw, as you see, I saw, seesaw. I love seesaws. <laughs> okay, coming up now in the just the mid-evening, the 9, 10 p.m. kind of range over in the east, you got really bright Jupiter into its upper right yellowish Saturn, and the moon will be hanging out between them, roughly, on July 24th. Good evening. Start with Venus in the early evening, catch Jupiter and Saturn in the mid-evening. We move on to this week in space history, which, oh, everything happened this week in space history. That is not true, but it's it's funny how there are some weeks that are a little thin. This week I'm going to do five things in a row quickly, uh, and I'll still miss some. So we got 1965. Mariner 4 does the first ever flyby, successful flyby of Mars. There's that, what is it, Apollo um, Oh, yeah, the, the one with two ones. Yeah, 11. Yeah, they did something in 1969. All right, first humans to walk on the moon, 1969. 
1975, Apollo Soyuz launched and uh, connected in space. 1976, Viking 1, first uh, really successful Mars lander. I'm just going to do one more. 2015, first Pluto flyby by New Horizons. And he could go on. I could, but I'm not going to because we also need to get to Space Fact. I like that. I like that. The range of your vocal talent there is fantastic. Oh, thank you. It's well known. In other words, Matt knows it, that the Soviets had several Venus, successful Venus landers. But did you know the U.S. has had a Venus lander? What? Although somewhat unplanned as such. Pioneer Venus Multiprobe, which has two other names, Pioneer Venus 2 or even Pioneer 13, was launched in 1978. It had four probes uh, that were atmospheric probes designed to study the atmosphere. But two of them actually survived landing. One of them transmitted data for over an hour. They weren't designed to do that, were they? No, they were designed as atmospheric probes, and they actually hit pretty hard, pretty darn hard. And uh, (laughs) so it's even more amazing. It was one of the the small ones that survived for a while. Hmm. So there you go. On to the contest. And we have some fun stuff that some of you folks submitted. I thought we might. I asked you who was the first, and I think only, married couple to fly together in space. How'd we do? I begin with this from Rod Sandry in Australia, who uh, chastises you somewhat, Bruce. He says, Bruce, the Google gods had this one figured out 248 million times in six-tenths of a second. I am not going to earn a degree in space trivia contest when you make it easy for us. Oh, wow. I think it's just fine that you made this fairly easy. I think it's great. (laughs) Try to mix it up. And I I get in trouble when they're too easy with some listeners and trouble when they're too hard with others. So we'll just, I'll just keep asking them and uh, hopefully most of you will be sort of happy. I think you're in the sweet spot. And I know Louis Igo was in the sweet spot. This is going to make those of you out there who keep entering every week and have not yet been chosen by random.org. It's going to make you a little crazy. His first time entering from Minnesota, and he got it right, I believe. He says that that married couple, Mark Lee and Jan Davis. That is correct, on shuttle flight STS-47. Which was quite a flight, as we will uh, learn in moments, if you don't already know. Congratulations, Lewis. You are going to get that stunning Planetary Radio t-shirt. And uh, we will uh, get that into the mail to you from chopshopstore.com real soon. We're ready to go on. Talking Venus. You like talking Venus. You just talked Venus. What was the first successful Venus orbiter? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. First successful Venus orbiter. You have until Wednesday, July 21st at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And here's a nice prize for uh, somebody out there, Sarah Stewart Johnson. Remember her, the great conversation we had with her about her book, The Sirens of Mars? The paperback version is about to come out. It's about a week away as we uh, record this uh, from Crown, Crown Publishing. And you're going to get a copy of The Sirens of Mars if you uh, get away with being the winner of this week's brand new contest from Bruce. That's it. We're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about cheese.
Thank you, and good night. Just last night, there were people eating pie. We were watching the show Atypical, and uh, they, they're constantly eating pie in that show. And now, I, I've, ever since then, I really have wanted apple pie with a slab of cheddar cheese. Doesn't that sound good? I don't know. Are you a cheese and pie guy, or are you an Alamode person? I'm an Alamode person. When, when, uh, when the option of ice cream presents itself, uh, always take it. <laughs> uh, otherwise, cheese is good. That's Bruce Betts. Nothing cheesy about him. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. He joins us every week here for What's Up. And I must acknowledge the wonderful pun that you made last week, which I let slip by, his locks that he would give up for rocks. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its hotter-than-molten-lead members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astro.